Hello, I'm Kyle Willoughby. Joining me is Claire White. Hello. And joining us are the fake geek girls, Missy and Mary. Hello. And we are Dragons, Sexy Robots, and Adventures, a Nerd Manual. We're here to discuss new nerd creations, how they were made, and explore the roots of the characters and the stories. And today we are talking about the 2014 comic, Ms. Marvel. Ms. Marvel is a Marvel, duh, comic about Kamala Khan. She is a nerdy, fan fiction-loving 16-year-old living in Jersey City who gets her wish when she is granted superhero powers. Uh, Kamala's abilities are given to her by the Terrigan Mist, which activate a latent super gene and make her a shapeshifter. Her favorite superhero is Ms. Marvel, so even though her powers don't resemble the original Ms. Marvel or Carol Danvers, she takes on the name and attempts to keep Jersey City safe, all while going to school, dealing with overprotective parents, and she's also Muslim American, the first one to get her own comic. Miss Marvel was released in 2014, is written by G. Willow Wilson, Santa Amanat, Sana Amanat, and Adrian Alfana. Alfona. Alfona. Um, I am going to talk about women characters in comics. Kyle, you're going to talk about... Uh, I'm going to talk about Sana Amanat and Marvel's 2014 initiative to push more characters of different backgrounds for different stories, and some blowback against that. (laughs) (laughs) I have some of that, too. And uh, Missy and Mary, you guys are going to talk about... Well, probably just a bit about the cultural context and... the, the importance of having diverse creators as well as, as well as diverse characters. And then I also just have a little bit of information about the editors-in-chief because I'm a person who finds that interesting. <laughs> I'm excited to hear. And just so you know, Missy and Mary are have a podcast called The Fake Geek Girls. And guys, could you tell us a little bit about it? Yeah, I can give you, I can give you our tagline because I feel that's the best way to sum it up because otherwise I just start we rambling. We are the exact uh, same way. <laughs> <laughs> um, so Fakey Girls is a podcast looking at nerdy pop culture from both a fan and critical perspective, encouraging the things we love to do better, which basically means that we read and watch things and play things. And then we think about what they mean culturally, what um, what values they have, like thematically and kind of break that down for audiences. Our main goal is to try to make like literary theory, critical theory accessible um, rather than you know, telling you that you absolutely have to go read Foucault (laughs) or you can't possibly understand the depth of the work. Um, We try to make things like that accessible for people because not everybody gets to go to a big fancy education. And no one wants to read Foucault. And no (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. Sorry. No worries. We really love you guys. We're huge fans. Thanks. And they feel kind of like perfect fit. I know. We met... Missy and Mary at PodCon this, you know, just a couple months ago. And once we learned about their podcast, like we've been listening to you guys every week. It's been amazing. So. Oh, thank yeah, you. Yeah, thank you so much. I really, I really like your guys' podcast. I listened to, um, I listened to your one about the Dragon Prince before we did ours. Mm-hmm. And it was. Your guys' it Dragon gave us a Prince lot of- episode was so good. <laughs> thank <laughs> thank you. you. It gave us such, like, we, we both of our podcasts kind of operate in the same sphere of like providing context to pop culture, but we do it in such different ways that like listening to your dragon prince episode gave us like fuel for our dragon prince episode. And so they're like kind of in conversation with one another in a way. Yeah, no, it's true. It's true. Actually, I thought like, I wish I'd heard this before. We did I the know episode. me too. I was like, Oh, I could have <laughs> stolen from the fake geek girls. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess I'll go ahead yeah, and go start. Ahead. Get started. Claire. Um, so, 
I want to, I'm going to start with some questions for the group since we have so many intelligent, uh, well, <laughs> well-versed geeks here. Um, I want you all to name some comic book characters, some female comic book characters. I mean, Wonder Woman obviously comes mm-hmm. to mind. Are we just talking superheroes? It can, any character. Okay. Snot girl. Snot girl. girl. I love snot girl. Um, Squirrel girl. Squirrel girl. Mm-hmm. Nancy. Oracle. So. what? Or Batgirl. Do I read comics? <laughs> like <laughs> I'm doing better than you. They've gone out <laughs> of my head. Comic but, but these are some good. This is a good start. And when you think of female comic book heroes in the Marvel comic book universe, who do you think of? Squirrel girl. Yeah. Squirrel girl. She's great. my fave. Who? Sorry. Spider Gwen. And Silk. Sorry. Who was that? Silk. She's a. Uh, she's she's like Cindy Moon. Cindy Moon. Oh, Cindy yeah. Moon. She, is she a different? Yeah, she's like the Spider Man of a different. Yeah, I think I she's know. she's a different Spider Man. Yeah. 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 <laughs> okay, I haven't <laughs> heard of her. And you know, Spider Gwen, oh, who's Spider-Gwen. newer. Also, Peggy Love Carter, Spider-Gwen. which oh, like yeah. had a you know oh, yeah. just kind of a some brief spotlight with that show. I was a huge fan of. You guys are doing really good with the questions. I want you all to know. (laughs) Now I want you to think of female Marvel comic book characters being written before 2011. The questions get harder. They sure do. They're really, really scaling up. Um, So Miss Marvel, obviously. Mm -hmm. Storm. Mm -hmm. Mm. Jubilee? No, wait, before. Okay, okay, I'm thinking. um, Yeah, yeah, she she was was before 2000. Yeah, she was. Yeah. Uh, Kitty Pride. Uh, pretty much only X-Men. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. God, no, was, this is this is good. This is what I expected and what I hoped to prove my point. <laughs> um, and then when you think of these female superheroes in comics before 2011, what images come to mind? Jubilee's <laughs> bright yellow jacket. <laughs> Boob socks. Boob socks. Boofs. <laughs> uh, the crop tops. The crop tops are still here, but the crop tops and low rise jeans. The intense abs. Yeah, yeah, they did have some intense abs. Yeah. And some intensely thin stomachs. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So really good at twisting. <laughs> Very good at twisting. <laughs> they're they're quite bendy. Yes. Yes, yes. So I want to kind of take a look at these, how these comic book heroes became the female comic book heroes and then how it changed over a little bit into what Kamala Khan, because she is so different um, than these female comic book heroes that we're talking about right now. So there has always been the argument that women don't like comics. And for a while, women certainly weren't buying a lot of them. Now I want to take a look. Um, We're going to go back in history to the 1930s and see if women always weren't buying comic books. Um, in the 1930s um, was a big decade for comics. They were very popular. And in fact, there were comics being written for women. There were comics being written for little girls. And um, in some women's magazines, there were featured comics for women. Um, it was more of a accepted medium at the time. Um, in the 1940s, there continued to be comics that featured female leads. And while I didn't read that publishers were particularly targeting women, they weren't always catering to boys. Um, in fact, the publisher Fiction House hired mostly women in the 40s because of the lack of male creative talent they were all fighting in World War II. 
Um, there were comics about women being spies. There were YA comics about being in high school and going on dates. And there were fantasy comics star- starring girls. And like I said, at the time, comics were much more prevalent, popular, and accepted. They were kind of the inter- a big entertainment medium. I speak good. <laughs> um, in 1954, I'm sure you guys have talked about it. We talk about it a lot in our on our podcast. The Comics Code Authority was established based on the mostly fake evidence by psychiatrist and fearmonger Dr. Frederick Wortham, who argued that comics were corrupting the youth. This censoring and bad press essentially left most comics and comic book publishers unable to continue. They just weren't selling comics. Parents were scared that their darling child would become a bad person corrupted if they continued to read comics. One of my favorite delinquent. Yeah. One of my favorite things about that whole Friedrich Wortham comics code authority thing was that they banned vampires from comics because horror comics are really (laughs) popular. So X-Men later tried to have a vampire villain and uh, they totally, they were not allowed to publish (laughs) because of the comics code authority. So instead of having this vampire villain, they made a a giant talking pterodactyl. (laughs) And that was okay. (laughs) Yes. Named Sauron. <laughs> My new favorite. He's son. a great villain. <laughs> and we're going to come back to the Comics Code Authority and how they were censoring comics and what they were looking out for in a few minutes because it's funny. Yeah. Um, this meant it, it was harder it sure to is. find comics. Publishing houses had to close. They weren't just coming out and they had a bad reputation. So you might not necessarily want to be caught reading comics. Superhero comics barely managed to continue, and this is partly because Wortham didn't think they were as quote-unquote harmful. It was the 50s, however. Women were supposed to be back in the household, not working the good jobs that men needed. This, of course, applied to comic book jobs. So not only were there less comic books, there weren't really women working in the comic book industry. So, of course, comics were being made by men with male readers in mind. And that's not that I necessarily blame them because I'm sure they were just writing what they wanted to read. Yeah, but that's also the 50s is when Wonder Woman joined the Justice League, but gave up her powers and became their secretary instead of being part of oh the Justice God. League. Yes, what they wanted to read, Kyle. <laughs> Gotta gotta set the the good example for all of the women. All the women. Yep. This is this is what you should be doing: being a secretary for the Justice League. That actually would be a pretty That'd cool job. It would, not, it would be a good job. But if you're wondering, you can aim a little higher. If you're, yeah, if you're wondering, it's underutilizing your skills. <laughs> yes, she's got she's got skills I don't have. So <laughs> because comics were deemed harmful. Why would you want your nice girl to start reading comics? And why would publishers even trying to start wooing your nice girl to read comics? They were just grateful that they were even getting people to buy the comics. And of course, they're heavily catering to that audience. The first female Marvel characters to get their own solo series in the 70s were literally created so that other companies wouldn't create them. There was a quote from Stan Lee saying that that's why he created Spider-Woman. He was worried that another company would come and snatch up the title. Oh. Also, She-Hulk. Oh, goodness. <laughs> and none of these, and they got their own series, but none of them lasted more than four years. And that's including the first Miss Marvel. It's up for debate if this was because of the quality of the comics, the lack of the support from the publisher and pushing their, you know, this new comic, if they were promoting it well, or if they weren't being written with the target audience women in mind or if women just didn't want to read the comics because you wouldn't want to be caught reading comics or most women wouldn't want to be caught reading comics. 
So truly the argument that never dies. Yeah. Yeah. It's like the, it's like a zombie just keeps coming <laughs> yeah. back to life. And like we talked about earlier, for the most part, women superheroes were on teams. Uh, the most fav- famous Marvel characters that I can think of, and please correct me if you think of more, um, were Jean Grey, Storm, and Sue Storm. Yeah. I couldn't think of anyone bigger. Oh, yeah. Susan Storm, of mm-hmm. course. Yeah. The Fantastic Four. Uh, the problem with these characters is most of the time their powers weren't quite as powerful as the men they were beside, or if they were super powerful, it made them unstable in a way that it didn't make their male counterparts unstable. Jean Grey turns into the Phoenix because she just, it's too much. And the Scarlet Witch. Yeah, I i i think Chris Claremont's Phoenix saga was one of the better and more, you know, feminist things written in I comics before. I haven't read before, it. I actually haven't read it. You know, it. before like now. But I feel like every time I have interacted with Jean Grey, it's psychologically so intense for her. And she's on the brink of insanity in a way that, say, um, Xavier isn't. Yeah, that's more of a I think that's more of a the way that it's shown in the movies and stuff in the comics. Like she's chosen by an all powerful goddess being and she like becomes the phoenix, which is like the, the power of will in the universe. And Claremont kind of put her onto that like. Jean Grey is now the most powerful X-Men. Okay. And I haven't read the comics. I've only seen the movies. Yeah. So, but I've heard really wonderful things about Chris Claremont's X-Men. I haven't read them myself, but I've heard very good things. Yeah. I think if you're going to go back and read an old X-Men comic, the Chris Claremont Claremont. Phoenix and Dark Phoenix sagas are, are really, really good. And again, I... In comics, there are notable exceptions where yeah. there are oh, women's stories definitely. that are written incredibly well. And not all Jean Greys are written incredibly well. Yeah, um, you know, there's <laughs> that, one- I've also heard that. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Wonder Woman is always an exception for the most part to these rules. She did. She was a very popular female superhero who had her own series. But on top of this lack of inclusivity of women, you I could do a whole segment on the bodies that were drawn for female comic book superheroes and the outfits they wore. And if you don't believe me, just Google Harley Quinn. No one should not believe you. <laughs> and the thing is, if you Google Harley Quinn, yeah, some of it's fan art, but a lot of it isn't. Yeah. And some of the stuff you think that's fan art isn't. isn't. <laughs> her, uh, her, I believe it was her redesign for New 52 oh, was a particular it's that corset right what's the opposite of favorite because <laughs> it's that <laughs> it was like leather shorts and an unlaced corset and i'm like she does like gymnastics yeah she's gonna fall out of that <laughs> on every account that's what all the nerds it are, looks that's, that's what all the dudes reading it we're hoping and for. it's crazy like, maybe it, now it's crazy because it's the new 52 that what was that 2011 yeah, 2010, I think. Yeah, sounds about right. Fairly recent. Um, and mm-hmm. superheroes aside, most female characters in comics were tools to move the male character story forward. Uh, they were there to be rescued, support their man, seduce the main character, and all in all, provoke an emotional reaction from him. Um, Carol Danvers started out as a secretary to Captain Marvell. Yeah. Um, some terms that I found, the two-panel woman, a woman who is in a comic for two panels to give the male character either dinner or a piece of paper or tell him something. Oh, um, fridged, 
Um, when a girlfriend or wife dies to further a plot device. This was coined by Gail Simone when she made a long list of women characters who had been tortured, killed, or maimed for the sake of the male character's journey. This is named after Alexandria DeWitt, who was murdered and stuffed into a refrigerator that her boyfriend, Green Lantern, found. Whoa. This was in 1994, (laughs) I think, too. So I'm sure off the top of our heads, we can all think of a character who was fridged. Oh, yeah, definitely. Um, uh, what's, uh, Daredevil's love yeah, interest. Yeah, Electra. Electra, but not even just Electra. Also, um, All of Daredevil's love interest. Also, uh, Karen Page. <laughs> all of Daredevil's yeah, love interest. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> but that's the point of and, Daredevil. It's like all these women are in his life. And dying. And they just and die because of him. Deaths. And that's the point of them being there. Yeah. I don't know if, uh, Missy and Mary, if you guys can think of any. For some reason, all that's, this is not a comics example, but it's, it's prevalent outside of comics as well. Um, and I, God, why this example? Uh, Shadow of Mordor, the game begins with the wife getting fridged. It's like, I think that's the one that begins with like press X to kiss and then she dies or something. Yeah, yeah. Just right. I mean, good grief. It's in James Bond too. It's very prevalent in culture. Yeah. Oh yeah. I think uh, just to shed more light on how cool Chris Claremont is when in the Carol Danvers, Miss Marvel storyline, she gets abducted and brainwashed mm-hmm. in another dimension and then she chooses... You know, she breaks out of it, but then she's like, oh, I choose to go back with the guy who brainwashed me and, you know, make it work because he cares. Well, she's pregnant, too. And she's pregnant. And this was before. And Chris Claremont was given that uh, Miss Marvel after that happened. And the first thing he did was have her come back to the Avengers and rip them all a new one for being like, why did you like, awesome. what the hell? Yeah. What were you doing? Why would you, you know, I was obviously brainwashed. Why were, is everyone okay with that? Right. Gwen Stacy. Gwen Stacy. Yeah. Another. Yeah, it's. I mean, if you really start thinking about comic books, yeah, so many examples of this. So the thing that makes this actually really funny is that the Comic Book Code Authority, which I said regulated comics from 1954 to 2005, five, said it was very concerned with violence and sexuality, especially when relating to women. That was part of the reason it was enacted. But you couldn't make a vampire character. <laughs> that got regulated (laughs) i love just the things that happen with with codes like that that in the haze code just what are you doing what's the haze code i see i the haze code is the the film one um that basically gave rise to noir by everybody trying to subvert that you can't show crime oh And you can't talk about sex, so everybody just talks around sex. Yeah. Oh, I didn't know about that. That's That's fascinating. That's the uh, just the absurdity of the rules. (laughs) It's sad but funny, also. So these characters were still the norm in the '90s and early 2000s. The famous fridging incident happened in 1994. So how do we get Miss Marvel in 2014, which is pretty soon afterwards? And I'm sure Missy and Mary can talk about this a lot. But in 2011, at a DC panel at San Diego Comic-Con with Dan Dido, an executive publisher for DC, Jim Lee, another executive publisher for DC, and Grant Morrison, an all-star comic book writer, there was a girl dressed as Batgirl asking why there weren't any women on the panel. And the response to the question was that DC had more iconic female characters than anyone else, and they were doing a pretty good job. (laughs) 
Uh, How dare you ask that question? While she was booed in the room, it gained a ton of internet traction, and DC was forced to write a press release saying that they heard the fans and were going to work on giving women more opportunities. That summer, that July, DC had released 86 comics with 300, uh, 300, 645 male creators and 82 female creators. This was a high for them, in fact, as far as having females working on comic books. Now, Marvel kind of got to dodge a lot of the uh, flack because it wasn't a Marvel panel. They had put out 90 comics that July with 712 male creators and 69 female. So Marvel wasn't doing any better. In fact, they were doing worse. Uh, This did lead to a rise, though, of hiring of women creatives, and it produced some of the most popular buzzy comics today, Squirrel Girl, that we mentioned earlier that I love, Captain Marvel, Miss Marvel, Batgirl, uh, Birds of Prey, and it gave rise to indie publishers making comics for women, Paper Girls, Monstrous, Rat Queens, Saga. Snot Girl. Who? Snot Girl. Snot Girl. (laughs) Um, Which you can see the direct, like it just, it after 2011, in the next few years, you can see a rise in comics being created to females. Also, adding to this, comics really started to regain a reputation as a respectable medium. The Comics Code Authority was done away with, and the rise of the good old MCU, Marvel Cinematic Universe, uh, made comics more popular, and they started becoming more ma- mainstream and accepted. And it was pretty much agreed on by authorities and parents that they weren't necessarily going to corrupt the young. Uh, That's now video games. Um, Also, uh, and this was a long time coming with comics like Mouse, Watchmen, Persepolis, Saga, uh, started receiving high, high, high critical praise, even winning Pulitzer Prizes. Of course, um, this broke into Comic Gate, which I don't know if you were going to talk about that at all, uh, where a bunch of old school comic fans rallied and harassed, uh, rallied together and harassed women and minorities on the Internet, claiming they were ruining their comics I'm not really going to talk more about it than that, but you can certainly look it up. There's a lot about it. Yeah. Was it around the same time as Gamergate as well? No, this was, all that like 2000, it was after. this was 2017, right, ladies? It was pretty recent. Uh, 2000, 2014 was when Gamergate as like a movement movement started. Um, Comicsgate with, was within the past couple years and it gained attraction. Like it gained traction when uh, they started targeting Heather Antos, um, who went out to lunch with a bunch of I believe it was just female Marvel Marvel creators. I could be wrong. Um, And they all got milkshakes together. And that became this whole debacle about women reading comics. But I do want to say that um, it was going on before then. It was primarily targeting trans comic creators, trans women in comics, primarily. Um, But that didn't get as much traction. Um, So it it has been going on for some, some time specifically targeting more marginalized creators, but it got popular press when it happened to Heather Antos, who's an editor at Marvel, if I remember correctly. Yeah. Um, and it, it, and I, I think, I think that's about right. 2017 sounds about right, but I think the harassment of, of creators like, um, Oh, I'm drawing a blank on her name. Uh, the creator of Kim and Kim, um, harassment of her has gone back years. Right. As well as many other trans comics right. creators. Um, so the thing is, is that Stanley famously said that he wrote his comics for the outsider because at the time comics were for outsiders. You weren't the cool jock reading comics as a rule. Um, and now comics have become more mainstream and most of this really has to do, I think, with the Marvel Cinematic Universe and how popular it is and the DC movies and how popular they are. 
And comics aren't being written for outsiders as much anymore. They're written for everyone and every kind of outsider, not necessarily the young boys who don't feel like they don't fit in with the cool kids. And there's this idea that that's being taken away or that's how some people feel that to me, it seems like I was the outsider. It was me. And now there's other outsiders, but I'm really but the I'm one the real that, outsider. Yeah, I'm the one that has been yeah. written for and that should be targeted. Uh, there's a there's like a, this popular conception that when somebody else gets the thing that you have had for so long that it's being taken away from you rather than that you can share the thing. Yeah. Um, and so when it, it comes to value. something like oh, sorry. Yeah. 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 When it comes. So when it comes to something like comics where, you know, maybe you got bullied in the past for for reading comics and now everybody's reading comics. There's this. And like, I, I want I don't want to pretend that I'm immune to this or I'm some kind of um, some kind of comic saint. Yeah. <laughs> this happens a lot. This happens a lot to me with music where I like a band and then like suddenly everybody likes that band and I'm very upset because I liked them first and yeah. you should all be paying tribute to me. And I, so, I, I like, I don't want to pretend that like I'm immune to this supreme level of uh, thinking I'm extremely cool for knowing about something. But um, when it comes to, I think this is how this manifests is it's, it's this combination of like, um, feeling like something's being taken away from you because you're not getting your credit for discovering the thing. And then also like having faced bullying for it in the past, you're like, well, everybody should, you know, everybody has to pay their dues. And then also the combination of like toxic masculinity and entitlement and feeling like it, it, it isn't just something that you enjoy. It is yours. And when somebody changes the thing or like adapts the thing or, um, redefines the thing they are somehow corrupting the original version that that you hold dear which is not true um we can we can do we can bring in you know philosophy for just a hot second here and talk about the al is it the al oh man no i should have looked this up beforehand my teacher cave? talked about uh, it is it is it the is it the cave my teacher talked about it specifically with regards to a chair he's like it was oh it's platonic ideals the idea that there's a pure and uncorrupted version of something yes. and um if you break a chair, say it does not break the the platonic ideal of a chair. The concept yes. of chair yeah. is not broken. That's Plato's um, perfect but that's, forms, right? Yes, thank you. Couldn't remember exactly which was some Plato or another. Um, <laughs> some Plato thing. <laughs> some Plato guy, you know, probably heard of him. Um, but I think that I think that maybe like a lot of this, we kind of missed that lesson in, in school that when you, when you change, when you change something, when you change, you know, Miss Marvel or you change um, Wolverine, when you make uh, Laura Wolverine instead, um, you're somehow corrupting the idea of Wolverine, but Wolverine is still there. He's still running. Around. He might be old man Logan now, but he's still like yeah. the yeah. old Wolverine still exists. He's not gone. Yeah. You can still go um, back and read it yeah. even if they're yeah, not he's still there for him this. anymore. Yeah. And I'm not immune to yeah. that either. I feel I'm like that way with books where I'm like, no, but I, I read it first. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yes. It's my thing. So it's, it's a natural, I guess it's, it's a human. natural impulse. Yeah. Um, this kind of uh, possessive, possessivity. Yeah. Uh, over, yeah. you know, what you deem you found first. Uh, but I think that there's also yeah. a beauty in being able to share this thing that you love with so many people and being able to talk Absolutely. about it with so many people. So as of 2007, I think, I think it's all, sorry. No, go ahead. Oh, I was gonna say, I think it's all in what you do with it. Cause I think it's natural to have those impulses to be protective over something that matters to you. It, but 
you know, what do you do with that impulse? Do you attack people on Twitter and dox them? Or do you be like, okay, I have this thing that belonged to me and now I can share it with others. Or do you, you know, like silently seethe in your bedroom for five minutes and be like, why didn't everybody like this band when I said they were good? (laughs) Um, like those are, those are all ways that you can deal with it. Obviously some of them more productive and helpful to society than others. Yeah. In 2017, The Bleeding Cool said 63% of comics are bought by men and 37% are bought by women. So while it is still primarily consumed by men, there's a it's a pretty large percentage of women who are buying comics. Yeah. And it's interesting, and I think I'm going to talk about that a little bit, uh, what the numbers that they're possibly using to oh, to get those percentages yeah. and, and what numbers they use for sales percentages. It's... It's kind of interesting and it's kind of backwards the way comics, uh, you know, calculates who is reading what and how much is selling. Yep. Well, I'm I'm ready to hear, Kyle. That was <laughs> that was my women in comics segment. So I want to start by taking us on a, a trip. Claire brought us back to the 1930s. I'm going to take us on a, a trip also very far back in time, uh, all the way back to 2014. Oh. <laughs> They were simpler times, you know, Russia had just annexed Crimea, ISIS was marching on Baghdad. There were no women in comics. Iggy Azalea's Fancy was the oh new big hit. Goodness. Oh my god. Whoa. <laughs> I discovered That's it first That's the thing though. that resonates. <laughs> when, you, when you guys discovered Iggy Azalea, it, it, it kind of ruined her for me, so I just... <laughs> <laughs> Number one Iggy Azalea fan. <laughs> Um, and in, in 2013, 2014, Marvel really started this new, uh, we'll call it an initiative, to start telling more stories from a diverse lens. Um, but what does that mean exactly? Well, that means they decided to try and make more characters and not even just make more characters, but have more creators that were women, minority, you know, somehow a... Um, uh, uh, I don't want to say on the margins of society because we live in a really colorful cultural world where everyone's different, Some but stories people, that weren't being told, people who weren't given this opportunity I before. Was say comic book stories that were maybe on the margins yeah, of the comic of, book world. Of comic book. That's exactly what it is. Uh, so in 2014, you had a bunch of new characters and revamped old characters coming out. Um, and this was in large part a reflection of Marvel trying to expand their fan base. So it's it's funny what you're talking about before that comics were always targeted at at boys and for a long time just targeted boys and and uh, men but when you do that you're cutting out at least 50% of who you could sell these things right. to and at the end of the day you know we love comics and comics tell good stories but Marvel is a business and they're right. trying to make money well also and they did horribly in the 90s they did hor- yeah the, the whole comics you know bubble crashed and all that happened in the 90s uh, so when you're deciding that like we're just gonna tell stories like the white male is kind of the base model for everything else. And these are the stories we're going to tell. You're cutting out a whole section of people who would be, you know, interested in buying comics just because they don't see, you know, anyone that resembles them or that tells a story that maybe they can connect with a little easier. Um, Oh, and Marvel was also, they were trying to expand the fan base and they're trying to keep a finger on the pulse of everyday uh, Americans. And Marvel used to be lauded for telling the more human superhero stories especially in the 60s. Uh, these, yes, these characters had superpowers, and yes, they were heroes, but they also had to deal with everyday problems. You know, Spider-Man couldn't hold down a freaking job and could barely pay rent. 
Mm-hmm. And a lot of the he had a horrible boss. He had a horrible boss that he worked for. Um, and, you know, the X-Men faced racism for being mutants, which was a very thinly veiled metaphor, obviously, for racism in the United States against African-Americans. Um, so I think Marvel in 2014 was playing catch up on trying to be true to its roots and tell more human stories. Um, and that meant acknowledging the massive diversity that is the U.S. You know, we're this isn't a country of just white men, <laughs> obviously. <laughs> Uh, you know, there's so many different people out there and there's, there's so many good stories to tell. Uh, and, you know, telling more stories and having more characters that are true examples of of that, of the diversity of, of the world. And so what were some of those new characters? We had a revamped Carol Danvers, uh, mm-hmm. now as Captain Marvel, in a redesigned costume that was more practical than it was Porn Star. Because that's what a lot of the, a lot of those, uh, like you were saying, a lot of female costumes before were just kind of like vehicles to show off cleavage and bikinis and yeah, they're just bikinis. Uh, so Carol Danvers got a new, more practical costume that was more reminiscent of, you know, her being a pilot and, and, you know, she flying, flying spaceships and stuff. Uh, and it was designed by Jamie McKelvey of Wicked and Divine fame, who we love. Uh, and it was being written by Kelly Sue DeConnick. And I believe that uh, it is the inspiration and basis for the new it is, yeah. Captain Marvel film. Um, there's a, there's definitely a lot of Kelly Sue DeConnick's, um, Carol Danvers in there. Oh, cool. It's been a while. It's been a while since I read, um, her take on Captain Marvel, but the, the feel of it is there and there are parts of it that are directly taken from it. I don't remember it being like a, it's, It's I don't remember it being like a straight adaptation. Um, but there's a lot of the feel of it there. That's awesome. That's going to be, I'm really excited to see it. Claire and I haven't seen it yet, but soon. (laughs) Um, and you also had the mighty Thor, which saw Jane Foster take up the hammer Mjolnir and wield the godlike Thor powers running around. And that uh, just ended, or not just ended, but ended in 2018. I think that run came to an end. Oh, I didn't know it ended. Yeah. She went to Valhalla and <laughs> I think normal man Thor is back. Okay. Um, and you also had the now famous, thank you, Into the Spider-Verse, Miles Morales as um, half black, half Latino Spider-Man swinging around New York City. Uh, which, I remember when he was debuted. Yeah. And I can only imagine after Into the Spider-Verse that Miles Morales will be even more popular oh, yeah. than when he was first brought out. Uh, Marvel can only... Oh, sorry. Go on. We can only hope. Oh, Marvel has a has a tendency to not tie their comics to their movies very well. Um, I'm not up to date on what's happening as far as Spider-Man goes in, in the Marvel Comics universe, but... Um, Historically, Marvel does not do a great job of having. This was a big problem with um, with uh, one of the Captain Americas. Um, people who watched the Captain America movie and then went to pick up the comic would have found that Captain America was now Hydra. Yeah, um, <laughs> true. They don't. <laughs> so they don't do a great job of matching what's happening in the cinematic universe to what's happening in the comic universe. So a lot of times there's very little jumping on point, which is super unfortunate. It, it um, is. I'm hoping that will change in the future. <laughs> yeah. It's crazy that they wouldn't try and tie that in more because these movies are in some ways, big advertisements for their comics, mm-hmm. uh, except right? that they'd never try and kind of incorporate them together, except maybe a little bit, at least inspirationally with this new Captain Marvel movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's there's clear visual cues as far as Captain Marvel goes with which Captain Marvel to pick up. Like if you see Captain Marvel, the movie, and then you go to the comic book store, you're going to know 
which Captain Marvel. It's the one where she looks identical and is doing the same pose yeah. on the cover, to be f- which is not something that we can say yeah. for a lot. To be fair to Marvel, this whole MCU thing is fairly new. And especially in mm-hmm. the beginning, the success of it and what fans were expecting. I feel like to have to align the MCU with the comic books would have taken a revamp of the whole thing. And not that they shouldn't <laughs> have a- done it, but I can understand how that is like an astronomical undertaking and the coordination that would have needed to happen to do that. I'm sure they're working on it now. There's so, a lot of complicated events going on in Marvel at any given time. They do a pretty good job with Marvel Rising. I don't know if you guys have watched Marvel Rising. It's like on it's a their cartoon on YouTube um, with Squirrel Girl oh, and Miss Marvel. And it it does it does do a pretty good job. Like it, it, I'm glad you can you can easily jump from one to another and be like, oh yeah, this is the same. Because when you're looking for those new readers, you need a jumping on point. You need a point where you can get to. Whereas something like the the major Avengers movies, they're working off of storylines that are mm-hmm. like several, not just several, like almost a decade old, maybe something like that. Yeah, at Thanos this point. is I think decades plural old yeah. right now. Yeah. And like Civil War was Civil War was pre Axel Alonso, if I remember correctly, yeah. as editor in chief. So pre twenty eleven, and so that can be very for for a new reader. Comics are intimidating for new readers, and so when you see something you like in a movie, it can be very hard to get in. Even though like logically, you you would think that you see a movie and then you want to read the thing that inspired it, but it can be very difficult for new readers. Yeah, yeah. 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 I do highly suggest Mar- Marvel Rising. Marvel Rising. <laughs> it's so on good. YouTube. You said, Mary. Yeah, it's on YouTube. Oh, check that out. Yeah. It's yeah, very that's, good. Because they do, it's it's a huge problem. And you're right that every time, if you were to see a Captain America movie and then go into a comic book and pick up a Captain America comic or an Iron Man comic, and you're like, it, secret wars, super secret wars, oh God, yeah. space yeah. wars. It's, and they're secret in the middle of some weird storyline. <laughs> it's, it's totally Thor's a frog. He's not a frog now, but he was a frog <laughs> for a while. <laughs> point. Marvel frog? Babies. Marvel Babies? Marvel Babies is a genius idea, and if they haven't made that yet... <laughs> then, I want it. <laughs> they should. <laughs> so back briefly to my segment in Marvel's 2014 <laughs> initiative. Um, you know, they were revamping all these characters. They were adding more people of color and women uh, to their staff and making more characters based around that. Marvel was even able to tap the great Ta-Nehisi Coates to write Black Panther mm-hmm. comics, which when I saw, I was like, wow, that's a huge deal. And I looked it up. Ta-Nehisi Coates' father was an actual Black Panther. Oh, very cool. Yeah. Oh, that's mm-hmm. cool. <laughs> that is cool. They, like, get, they get huge writers now. Yeah. But you know, keep going. We can talk about that later. And uh, and you had a Muslim high schooler in Jersey City calling herself Miss Marvel and running around in a lightning dress and tights. And She's pretty cool. And she's pretty cool. Pretty fun. Uh, so these comics showed Marvel was really pushing towards a fun and interesting lineup of new characters and trying to get back to telling uh, their human story, which I think really, truly is at their roots. You know, they they have they have a lot of missteps in the past. But I think when you look back, they do want to tell stories that are for the everyday person, you know, just with superheroes. Mm-hmm. Um, but what spurned on this decision to, to diversify, uh, it was actually one of the co-creators of Kamala Khan, the new Miss Marvel, uh, and that is Sana Amanat. She was one of the people really pushing to do this at Marvel and, and revamp some characters. So Sana Amanat is an editor at Marvel and is the director of content and character development. And she is also a Pakistani-American woman 
the daughter of Muslim immigrants who grew up in New Jersey. <laughs> Sounds familiar. Sounds familiar. <laughs> so, so Amanat got her start reading comics when she was just a kid growing up in Jersey. She had two older brothers, um, and she cites the X-Men as her favorite comic growing up, along with that wonderful, always beloved X-Men 90s cartoon. I don't... You know, oh, yeah. I It's been a while since I've seen it, but I, I have a feeling that it still holds, <laughs> holds up. <laughs> I watched some clips from it. It's pretty, it's pretty wild, but <laughs> the nostalgia's there. That's, yeah, awesome. It seems so cool. <laughs> Uh, but Amanat joined Marvel in 2009 and was brought on to bring a new voice and lens to Marvel Comics. Um, and she said in a Vogue article by Janelle Akwodu entitled Miss Marvelous, I remember my current boss saying, look, you have something different to offer than the regular fanboy who has read comics since he was a kid. You have a different voice and we need your voice in order to change Marvel. Um, and I think that's really true. And and as far as what, you know, what we were talking about before about you know, X-23 becoming Wolverine. Right. Or uh, Kamala Khan becoming Miss Marvel. Marvel. Like, people people hold on to those old ideas of who Miss Marvel was, who Wolverine was, who Thor was, and, and they say, like, oh, this is different, I don't like it, you know, it's not as pure. To me, it's more of a passing of a torch, you know? Mm-hmm. You don't want these characters to just go on and on and on right. and on. Or you're like just you retelling can, the same story over yeah, and over. Yeah, you're just retelling the same story over and over again. And I, I, that's what I, I really feel like Sana Amanat did and was trying to do with pushing new characters was just passing the torch of some of these um, mm-hmm. old titles on to a new generation. Uh, was she? Did she herald an X-23? Oh, Sana Amanat? No, I don't know. That was so. before her. Yeah, that was Marjorie Liu. Right. Um, so Amanat is credited as being one of the major voices in Marvel, advocating for not just more characters of different backgrounds, but more writers and artists of different backgrounds. Um, and according to that same Vogue article, Amanat is the one responsible for bringing Ta-Nehisi Coates into Marvel to write Black Panther. So that's a, yeah, that's a big fish that she reeled in. Um, and she also helped create a new character that aforementioned Muslim girl from New Jersey, Kamala Khan. Um... Amanat brought on writer G. Willow Wilson, which is definitely a superhero name if I've ever heard one. <laughs> so is hers, though. I know. I agree. Sana Amanat and uh, G. Willow Wilson are total superheroes, pretty sure. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So G. Willow Wilson was brought on to write and help create young Kamala Khan slash Miss Marvel. And Wilson and Amanat at first thought about making her a Somali Muslim American, but ultimately decided on Pakistani. And I, I couldn't find like reference to this, but I can only assume it's because of Amanat's own heritage and background. Write what you know. Write what you know. This is a this is a a Pakistani American girl growing up in New Jersey. And she makes a character that's a Pakistani American girl growing up in New Jersey with an older brother, and they both had older brothers. Uh, Sana Amanat had two older brothers. Do you happen to know off the top of your head um, when the Miles Morales comic was coming out? Uh, I think Miles Morales was yeah was a little bit earlier than that too. It was it was it was twelve two thousand twelve or two thousand thirteen I think. Okay. I'm I'm wondering if if making that change was a little bit of an attempt. So my, I, I believe that the Miles Morales Spider-Man comic was very popular, but it was being written by a white man, um, Brian Michael Bendis. And I'm wondering if the, the, the shift there may have been an attempt to, it was, it was criticized a bit for not being quite authentic yeah. in, in that it was being written by a white man about a young um, 
Afro-Latino teen. And in having uh, Sana Amanat write a story that was true to her own experience, they were bringing an authenticity to it that may not have been present in something like the Miles Morales comic, um, which I think shows a nice evolution. I don't know if that was actually their motivation for doing that, but I wonder if there w- if that played some role. Yeah, I agree. I think it did. Now, Sana Amanat helped create the character, um, but I, Willow Wilson was the one who right, wrote right. most of the comic, but I totally agree. And Willow Wilson is... Um, She's an American. She's a Muslim convert. She converted to Islam. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think, you know, like they they work together in creating the character and developing the storylines. And you're right, totally right. It does lend a lot of authenticity. That Bendis Morales, some of those early storyline uh, with Miles Morales, Spider-Man under Brian Michael Bendis, did get criticism for, you know, saying some kind of weird uh, weird stuff about, you know, there was like some social justice warrior in quotes, villain types and... Uh, and yeah, I don't know. I, I actually didn't read it, but I remember I've read some articles about it that were a, a bit critical of Brian Michael Bendis's yeah. take on that. I think one of the things that's really beneficial about that early criticism is now you have things like I believe Saladin Ahmed is is doing um, the newer Michael uh, Michael Morales. Yeah. Miles, yeah, Morales, Miles Morales doing the doing the newest Mike uh, Miles Morales comic. And I remember seeing him on Twitter reaching out for if you were a young Afro Latino team, what would you be listening to right now? What kind of music would you be listening to? What kind of, what kind of media would you be consuming? Um, and in, in being mindful of, of past criticisms, creators are able to take advantage of like, you know, they can use that criticism to make the more, the newer characters right. more authentic. Yeah, yeah. yeah, definitely. And I, I like Brian Michael Bendis. I think he's written some good stuff, but it, you know, it's just, it's an interesting it, choice. It's an interesting if choice. You're, yeah. You're revealing this great new diverse character and, He's written by this guy yeah. who's written all these comics because he's our, you know, steadfast white creator. Yeah, yeah. It's less exciting. He's also, for for a long time, uh, Jessica Jones wasn't allowed to have a new series because he he was the only one allowed to write Jessica Jones. Yeah. She'd only appeared in side stories because the character essentially, they, Marvel didn't want anybody else writing her, which became rather unfortunate um, when it came to the Netflix series because nobody else was allowed to write a comic and he wasn't available. Oh, really? Sorry, that's a side. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, they just they wouldn't give the character to anybody else. She did appear briefly in Patsy Walker, aka Hellcat. Yeah. Um, in a quite different context. <laughs> okay. But um, yeah, he he basically had control over the character, and they wouldn't let anybody else write her. Oh wow. Which is unfortunate. Yeah, that is kind of unfortunate, especially with the show yeah. coming out. That could have been a really big push for Jessica Jones. Who is yeah. yeah one of I think her that first season is the best of those Marvel oh, Netflix shows. by leaps and bounds yeah yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. um so anyway uh, back to Sana Amanat uh, and G Willow Wilson uh, Wilson and Amanat they were worried about a very harsh critical reception for Miss Marvel uh, but instead when Miss Marvel came out in 2014 they received the opposite the new Kamala Khan gained national attention and spotlight. She was talked about on CNN. She was written about in the Washington Post and Al Jazeera. And she was even brought up on the satirical Colbert Rapport. <laughs> I saw her as a guest on Seth Meyers. Yeah, she's a guest, she was a guest on Seth Meyers. Um, so so her character, or their character, because it, the, it was the two of them, really did gain this like national worldwide mm-hmm. attention. Um, and that same Miss Marvel comic won the 2015 Hugo Award for Best Graphic Story, and it was nominated for multiple Eisner Awards in 2015 and 2016. Um, and this is just a little quote that I want to uh, 
kind kind of leave off on before we talk a bit also, more. Also, didn't President Obama recognize it as well? He, she met President Obama. Yeah, she got to go. She got to go to the White House on Amanatid and meet Obama. And I think she gave him like a signed copy of uh, of the book. Yeah, such goals. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty cool. That's you know you've made it. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I want there, there's a great quote from Sana Amanat, and this is from a Washington Post interview from 2016 uh, by Michael Kavna, and I think it sums up what Marvel's trying to do and what they have done in the past, um, and what she's really trying to push Marvel into. And it's that uh, superheroes are the equivalent of modern day gods and goddesses. They encompass the high ideals so many of us aspire to have: empowerment, courage, integrity, to name a few. And those ideals don't have a racial identity or gender qualifier associated to them. At the same time, our heroes come with their own vulnerabilities and issues that make them relatable. It's the balance of the mundane and the fantastic in the superhero world that is intrinsic to the human experience. The obstacles we face, the efforts we make to overcome them, and the belief that we have the power within ourselves to succeed, that's really really the tale of every kind of hero. And I just feel like that's a, a good summation Mm-hmm. of what Marvel kind of started as and right. what they're trying to push more towards now. Well, they said they kind of modeled her off of Spider-Man. Oh, Kamala Khan? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that, you know, this is a kid who's, you know, struggling with being a superhero and staying awake in school yeah. and with her parents. Who? Yeah. Why are you getting bad grades now? You know, why <laughs> are you sneaking out at night? Yeah. Um, and now this leads me to something that happened a couple years ago. Uh, 2017, I think, was a rough year for Marvel's PR in some ways, especially the comics. Uh, and this is David Gabriel, uh, who is the uh, vice president of Marvel, or was at the time, um, getting quoted. Oh, I read this. Saying that um, in regards to Marvel Comics sales slump, that. People, quote, didn't want any more diversity. They didn't want female characters. I think he rescinded that. He, he did. then, like, later was like, oh, I didn't mean that. Yeah. But yeah. he said it. He did rescind. Of course he did. Oh, sorry. Go on. <laughs> I was just saying, of course he's rescinded it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Stupid. It was, it, was a, it was a dumb move. <laughs> to give credit, he rescinded it. <laughs> to give credit. All right. Let's not gang up on the guy. <laughs> but no. Yeah. It's, it's, it's so, so dumb. What? <laughs> Um, but, uh, but the, I think the context is important for when he said that. And it was, it wasn't that he was in like a random interview. It was, it was Marvel's summit with these comic book real retailers. Um, and some, some of the retailers were spoke, speaking up and saying that, uh, that the diversity was hurting their sales and Marvel sales executives, including Gabriel were present for those remarks. Um, and one retailer reportedly said, I don't want you guys doing that stuff, explaining that the political content in some of Marvel's comics uh, was like too much and it was driving away readers. Um, well, they're obviously not in Manhattan. They're obviously not in Manhattan. And that's another thing. So other retailers at that convention said or at that meeting were saying the opposite. They're like, oh, well, you know, Miss Marvel's selling really well. Right, because I, w- I was buying Miss Marvel. I was subscribed to it when it first came out. And I remember being told, oh, it's a good thing you subscribed because otherwise you wouldn't be able to get a copy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I just wanted to, to put out some context to that. Um, and it's not that it's not that I, I think that, you know, 
those comics, like it's not that those are bad comics, like some of you know the more diverse and uh, and new comics. I don't think they're bad comics, but the way that Marvel conducts their numbers and calculates like what is popular and isn't popular is pretty much entirely based on sales through comic book stores, which does not include sales through digital mediums like Comixology Mm -hmm. and does not include sales through trades or bookstores or scholastic events, which now have comics. And that's one of the things. Um, Oh, sorry. Go on. Sorry. Do you know if they count like reads on like the Marvel app and stuff? No, those well, they they keep those numbers to themselves. The only numbers that we know of are through comic are through comic book stores. Why? Interesting. And there's a quote Kelly Sue DeConnick (laughs) said that she knows for a fact that Miss Marvel was the number one seller on Comicsology for a while, but like those numbers are kept close to their chest, and I don't know why, and I couldn't find out like guesstimates about them. There's the com- the comics industry itself is very complicated. There's a monopoly monopoly on distribution. Um, distribution is primarily handled by Diamond. Right. Um, Apparently, they're horrible. Who, I we're friends oh with God, the com- yes. we're friends with a comic book store owner. Another major wrinkle to the to the whole sales figures thing is that comics are often canceled before like they, they they can be canceled before they even come out based on pre orders. Um, so if not enough people pre-order a comic, they will cancel a comic even before the first issue is released. So like the four issues or whatever that have been made will come out, but no more will, which means that sales are further limited because they weren't pre-ordered enough. And a lot of times um, the big two, DC and Marvel, will shift the burden of marketing to the creators themselves. So Kelly Sudaconic famously handled most of the marketing for Captain Marvel before it came out. It's crazy. It is absolutely buck wild that they shift the burden of marketing to creators. Um, and this becomes a big guilt. It becomes a big guilt trip for, for comics readers, because you feel like you have to pre-order a comic you've never read based on faith that you will like the creator or the, or the character itself. No idea if it's actually going to be good because if it gets canceled, then it becomes, um, people don't like diverse comics when actually it's like, I don't know if it's going to be good or not because it's brand new and you forced me to pre-order before I can even read it. Um, that's crazy and they don't even pay creators that well no they don't yeah no (laughs) it's the the business practices like heavily skew the the idea of sales in the like like what are sales in the comics industry if you only count you know you only count things sold sold through stores you don't count bookstores you don't count digital sales you don't count your own app like yeah and and like you don't count trades yeah. either. Like that's what blows. You'll my get canceled before they'll get canceled before they even go to trade, which means that like you've lost a huge portion of the audience. You've lost the entire library system. Libraries aren't ordering floppies, um, yeah. right? Yeah, like it's just criminally short sighted, and it ends up hurting diverse creators who are the ones who are untested, who haven't had you know decades in the industry to to write every white male character known to mankind. Um, so you have new creators whose series get canceled before they even come out and then they go well diverse comics aren't selling and it's why we have a lot of those creators going to animation now right yeah many many especially um, a lot of previous boom creators have shifted to anime instead not anime sorry animation animation Noel Stevenson Stevenson, um, and that also has to do with uh, low page rates and just the uh, being a professional comics writer is just unsustainable as far as income goes. Are independent publishing companies the same? Independent publishing com- companies have their own are their own can of worms. 
Um, even like the quote unquote best being image, probably the most successful. Um, they still don't do a whole lot as far as marketing goes and they kind of throw their creators to the wolves. Um, you are, that is more, that makes more sense to me Mm -hmm. because they give them so much creative freedom. Right. So it, it feels like a more even trade of, okay, well, we're going to let you do whatever you want. You just have to market it. You would think you would think that a company like Mar- like Image would function as a book publisher does, but they don't. Um, the most of the financial burden goes to the creators. Uh, Image just kind of puts their label on the front and then maybe does a little marketing for it. It's it's very strange. And then boom, notoriously, you can... I can give you give you a link to this, but the there's an annual page rate survey that goes out among comics writers and creators um, of all kinds, artists and letters and so on, um, as far as what they're being paid per page. And boom, statistically, dis- despite being the comics publisher with the most diverse lineup in terms of both creators and characters, uh, has the lowest page rates, like by far, like unlivable standards as far as their their page rates go. Um, and page rates are, I'm sorry. Pay, payment oh, oh, payment per page. Yeah, payment per, per page as far as far as scripting and art and lettering go. Um, and it's just, it is unfathomable the degree to which the the monopoly on the comics industry of as far as distribution goes, and then also these just bizarre business practices when you compare them to other industries like book publishing, like the things the things that go that are just like standard in comics are just, they're just baffling. Like, why would you not market your book? Why would you shift that burden to creators? That's, that would, that would be like, if you, if you had a publisher in, in like the, the um, traditional book industry, if you have a publisher who says you have to do your own marketing, we're not giving you any money for that. You run the other way. Like you break your contract. That's messed up. You don't do that. But in comics, it's standard. Yeah. And it, it makes you wonder why anyone wants to write comics, mm-hmm. but it's like the people that do it obviously really love mm-hmm. it and want to write these stories and like love comics. But uh, it yeah. just it sounds like it used to be an industry that had no money and they've just continued the same practices yeah. that they always have. I mean, marketing is really expensive. Why? Mm-hmm. So I can see what like if this will work, then they would shift if that shifting the burden is working, which is not, but they feel like it is then why would you spend literally probably millions of your Marvel on marketing for someone that you're not sure if it's going to work out? Right. But yeah, but you'd think like with movies coming out, they could market, you know, as the movie, like with Captain Marvel, that they would push the new cap, you know, like we mentioned before that they, they really don't, kind of cross pollinate in that way very well. I was hoping uh, and it just seems like bad business. I was I was hoping with <laughs> Disney taking over that maybe that would change a little bit, but it doesn't seem like it has in- at all. Instead, Disney's taking uh long-standing Marvel owned prop like Marvel Comics owned properties such as Star Wars and selling the licenses to other comics publishers. This is real. <laughs> I think I can't remember who they gave Star Wars to, but uh, the Star Wars comics, if I recall correctly, are no longer published by Marvel. Oh, really? I didn't know that. Mm-hmm. Like, pulled the plug on that. Mm-hmm. They're like, you got to stop that. Get out of there. <laughs> I was looking for a, uh, I guess it's, it's a tweet from Kelly Sue DeConnick from uh, 2017, where she was asked how much marketing would you say Captain Marvel got while you were writing it? 
She said, zero dollars I paid for postcards, Carol Core membership cards, and dog tags out of my own pocket. Yep. That's insane. That's that's crazy. That is crazy. May as well start a podcast. Um, right. Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> ladies, I we'd love to hear some of your uh, insight beyond marketing um, on the Kamala Khan series. I Kamala Khan so- Run, I should say. <laughs> I'd heard wonderful, wonderful, wonderful things about the series, but I had just not gotten a chance to pick it up yet. I had, I'd read it uh, like a year or so ago and I was just like, this is great. I love her. She is me. I am her. Yeah. <laughs> and then actually reading it, like I think the praise was was so well deserved. It was it was. And I think the thing we mentioned this a, a bit earlier, but the idea of authentic authenticity was so important, I think, to what I loved about the comic. Mm-hmm. Um as as you mentioned, uh, G Willow Wilson, G Willow Wilson converted to. Um, I just drew a blank on everything. <laughs> converted um, to something, something or other. Uh, G Willow Wilson converted to Islam. Um, I believe in college, if I remember correctly, and so she brings a very different perspective to it. And then you also have um, the influence of now. I'm God. Where did my brain go in the last? Did like coffee just wear off or something? <laughs> Um, and then you also have, uh, Sana Amanat in, involved in creating the character. So you have this sense of authenticity that gives her this, this sense of life that, um, other, like when, for example, I'm trying to think of a, I, I don't read a lot of superhero comics, so I, I'm bad at coming up with examples, but for example, when, you know, standard white dude comics creator writes, you know, a teen girl you often kind of just want to like chew your own arm off when you read that. Cause it's like, yeah. Have you ever met a teen ever, right. ever, ever, like even one time. Um, whereas you don't get that from this. There's still some moments that, that are like, okay, this is an adult writing as a teen, but there's also all these cultural touchstones of like, fan fiction that, that is my favorite part the fan fiction the fact that she's just like meets wolverine she's like oh my gosh I just wrote a fan fiction about you <laughs> yeah. yeah that I, for me was just yes you totally understand who you are talking to yes not just like young kids but like older kids like me who can mm-hmm. be like okay yeah I, that totally ties me to my teens and maybe still now yeah and that yeah. lack of embarrassment yeah. too because yeah. i think about like the um i was a tutor for a while and a lot of times my my students a lot of whom were like maybe a little younger than than Kamala Khan but um similar in age uh would just straight up tell me about their fan fiction like they'd just be like oh yeah I write fan fiction it's about blah 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 or they'd write it in class and I'm like yeah you go kids like own it don't be embarrassed about that like that's rad I'm so glad that you guys are are so interested in in being creative at such a young age and, and feeling so passionate about what you do and so I love I love that about about her as a character she's unabashed like she's not ashamed of the person that she is even as she's like learning more about the person she is and the person she's going to become and I think that like I said that sense of authenticity is so important as far as what makes this a an enjoyable comic um as a reader I'm not big in superhero comics. There's a there's a few that I really like, like Squirrel Girl, um, but for the most part, I'm I'm more of a fantasy and horror person. Um, but the reason I like stuff like this is because they feel like they are targeted at me as a reader, in terms of like they're not so interested in the punchy punchy part, and they're more interested in the like what what it, what does it mean to be a hero. It's not just a yeah. hero is punching. A hero is, is you know, as Kamala Khan does, like somebody who protects her neighborhood. Somebody who not not just 
stands up literally and, and punches bad guys in the face, but who also stands up for her entire generation and talks about the importance of um, recognizing um, the burden that's placed on younger people and the expectations that are placed on younger people and fighting um, this urge to, uh, God, what am I, I'm thinking of the part in particular when the, the, inventor is like scolding them for being young and lazy and being a drain on resources yeah and she's like no she's like that's she's like you can't you can't just and i love this specific i did i was not an infinity war fan um <laughs> i love this specifically as like in conversation with infinity war where it's like oh thanos has a point we really should just kill off half the population of the universe <laughs> And Kamala Khan's like, I was actually no. Um, what if we didn't? <laughs> what if we? <laughs> what if we didn't do that? <laughs> um, yeah. uh, I just love that she that she literally stands up in that she stands up and fights physically the bad guys, but she also stands up figuratively and in a more abstract sense and and advocates for her community. That's that's a sense of heroism that I think sometimes is left out of of some of the like top selling Marvel comics that you'll see on like the rankings and stuff like that. The stuff that doesn't appeal to me. I think that it, it is a real in conversation with Captain Marvel is a really good way of looking at how, you know, you keep standing up, you keep getting up. And like, that's how Miss Marvel feels like she clearly has a lot of insecurities, but she keeps getting up. And like, that's really inspiring. And what I love about her. I think one of the things that, that really appeals to me too about, Miss Marvel or Ms. Marvel is the fact that like in universe, she's inspired by the character of Carol Danvers as Captain Marvel. And it shows this building on this, this legacy of the introduction of diversity through characters like um, Kelly Sudaconic or through Kelly Sudaconic's run on Captain Marvel. And then you have this further diversification with Kamala Khan. Um, and that kind of shows this, this ongoing building of diversity that's been happening at Marvel. Um, and you can see this even through like the behind the scenes stuff. So for example, um, Axel Alonso, who I think we mentioned briefly earlier, uh, joined Marvel not as editor in chief in 2000. And then he became editor in chief in 2011. Um, and he was only in Marvel's 70 year history. He was the second um, person of color to be editor in chief. Um, the first being his immediate predecessor, uh, Joe Caseta. And under him, you saw Marvel now, which is where you got the introduction of um, a lot of legacy characters reimagined for new and young audiences like Young Avengers, Miss Marvel, et cetera. Um, they also hired under that particular administration of um, Marvel editorial. They also hired the first black women writers the in Marvel history. The first? The first Ooh, in 2016. The first. Um, I don't remember which comic it was on. It was in 2016. I think, I think, that, it, I think it was Iron Man. Iron Man. Yeah. Iron Man. Yeah. It, yeah. it could have been uh, uh, Riri Williams. Yeah. Um, which is not to say that 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 rain was not without its low points because it super had low points. But um, there was a definite push for diversity in that in that way that has in some ways continued and in some ways stepped back a little bit. So um, C.B. Sibolsky is the current editor in chief. Um, Alonzo left marvel in 2017 he might have been fired oh really um, there's a really great piece uh, at women write about comics by rosie knight um that talks a little bit about alonzo's legacy um which i'd be happy to share if you want to throw it in the in the show notes um sorry my tamagotchi went off <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> Time to feed the um, pet. <laughs> so um, C.B. Sibulski took over after that. And C.B. Sibulski is a whole thing to unpack as far as um, his his... Just yeah, him. Yeah. Pretty interesting. <laughs> Some pretty interesting stuff with Sibolsky. Yeah. Um, so he's he was a longtime Marvel writer and editor. Um, he definitely did impersonate a Japanese man. Um, sure did. If you want to dig into that on your own, uh, the name would be Akira Yoshida. Um, but in his time as editor, we've seen um, an increase in creators of color working as writers and artists, especially as you mentioned earlier, a lot of novelists. Um, you have um, Roxane Gay, who may have actually been under uh, Alonzo, but you have um, Nendi Okorafor mm-hmm. right now. You have Eve Ewing. What is Nendi Okorafor um, writing? Sherry. Oh, really? Yeah. That's what is awesome. she doing? I can't remember, unfortunately, what she's working oh, on. Oh, she's working on the Shuri comic. On Shuri. From oh, okay. The oh, Shuri yeah. comic. Oh, that's um, perfect. So you have, yeah, you have a lot of novelists of color being brought in, but then you also have back backslides. Um, so like Iceman in, um, I believe in 2017, he was outed as gay in, in one of the comics. It was not a particularly great way of handling the fact that Iceman was gay. I haven't read it. It's not really my forte, but... Um, Shortly after that, his series was canceled. And then after that, he was shoved back into the closet. Whoa. Um, and now, and that, that happened. So like we have some steps forward, but we also have some steps back. Um, you also have Squirrel Girl has been running for ages, right? And includes a trans male character. Um, but at the same time, the only woman on the core team has now left the comic. So now we have a team of men writing Squirrel Girl. And like working on Squirrel Girl, and don't get me wrong, I squir- I love Squirrel Girl with every beat of my heart. Yeah, Squirrel Girl's um, a lot of fun. Yeah, but it it does still. We have to consider as well the the actual humans creating the comics. We can't just praise the the diversity of the characters themselves. That's very, at least for me, that's extremely important. So this trend toward diversity is good, but the fact that it's so slow and cautious also doesn't feel very good, because it feels more like marketing, which it is. Yeah. 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 Oh yeah. Um, so as much as like, I, I want to celebrate and praise efforts like, uh, like Ms. Marvel, which, which has, you know, creators of color working on it and it has marginalized creators working on it. Um, but I also don't want to stop there. I want, I want books to be written by people who have those experiences, you know? Oh, definitely. And these, these, these great stories need to be treated as like more of a common thing, not an anomaly. Yeah. And I think that's why Ms. Marvel is so good. Like yeah. those experiences are folded into the comic itself. And that's why it, that's why it resonates so deeply with people. It feels authentic. Whereas um, something that's written by somebody who is not marginalized, um, trying to tackle a marginalized character is not going to resonate as deeply because it's just kind of paying lip service. If we can do the front, if we can do front and back um, representation, then I think we're going to see a stronger, a stronger trend. And I, it does seem as if we're moving that way just very slowly. Yeah. Well, it's funny because you would think that I, as you know, a white teenager that grew up in California, a white girl that grew up in California, that I wouldn't be able to identify with Miss Marvel, but I completely do. Um, mm-hmm. I feel like her, the way she feels like an outcast and the way she feels like she doesn't fit in and trying to balance everything, even though it's very specific to her, it feels right. Cause it's so specific to her. Yeah. And yes. it reminds Same. me of my teenage years. 
Yeah. And like her, you know, anxieties about like who she talks to and running into the popular girl at school and how the popular girl at school interacts with her. I'm like, oh, yeah, I remember that. I get that, you know, and Mm -hmm. it's not quite my experience, but it's an experience that I can relate to. Yeah. Sometimes the degree of specificity is is good for for creating an experience that's universal. And like you said, it it sounds counterintuitive, but the level of detail that that's put into it makes it feel more real than something that is written to be general. Right. And also, I think it's a reminder that we're all having really similar experiences. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, obviously not all of us, but I feel like for a lot of teenagers in America, for how uh, horrible and different you think your experience is from everyone else's, actually, maybe it's not that different. Yeah, there is some Venn yeah. diagram, you know, overlap there, definitely. I mean, I... <laughs> feelings. I, feelings. I, as a white man, also really enjoyed Miss Marvel, Ms. Marvel and, uh, and could get behind the high school experience. And also just that she's confused and doesn't know who she is yet, especially in the beginning and what she wants to be. And she thinks she wants to be uh, Carol Danvers... And, mm-hmm. you know, that like that happens right off the bat. She kind of transforms into her and realizes like, oh, this, you know, this isn't exactly what I want to be. This is different. Like, I need to embrace who I am. And that's something I feel like is universal, regardless of uh, gender or or uh, race, you know. Yeah, there's a there's a grappling with with what it means to be a hero in terms of what does it look like to be a hero and ultimately that's discarded in favor of it does it doesn't matter what you look like to be a hero or where you come from to be a hero it matters what you do with with the heroism and i think that's something i that's something that makes it very relatable for for all readers and it's also i i think it just helps that ms marvel is written very well yeah definitely <laughs> no definitely so, thank you all so much for listening. Once again, I'm Kyle Willoughby. And I'm Claire White. And we are Dragons, Sexy Robots, and Adventures, a Nerd Manual with the Fake Geek Girls. Yay! Thank you, <laughs> uh, Thank you free- so much for having us. Yes, yes. It's been, it's been a pleasure. Uh, feel free to contact us on our website at dsrapodcast.com, and we would love it if you could rate and review us on iTunes. You can find the show on Twitter at dsrapodcast. I can be found on Twitter at klex303, that's K-L-E-X-303. I can be found at Along With Claire, that's C-L-A-I-R-E. And you can find our producer James at James Foey Jr., that's James Foey, F-O-U-H-E-Y-J-R. And Mary and Missy, where can our listeners find Fake Geek Girls and yourselves? You can find our podcast at fakegeekgirlscast.com, which has links to all of our social media, which is much easier than me trying to list them off because I mess it up. I mess it up every time. (laughs) Um, You can find me online at melissabrinks.com, which also has links to my currently neglected social media. Um, And also buy my book, The Compendium of Magical Beasts. Um, It's cool. That's my opinion. (laughs) I I, I share the same opinion. Go buy the book. Um, Mary, where can people find you? Um, I don't know. You can find me on t- <laughs> you can find me on Twitter at Witch Mary, like like W I T C H, and then my name is spelled M E R R I because it's weird, and my parents wanted to be weird. Um, but yeah, thank you guys once again so much for coming on with us. Um, you can learn more about Ms. Marvel on our Facebook page and our Twitter, where we're going to post some of the articles that we use, and we'll in our post show. links to the Fake Geek Girls and as well. links to the Fake Geek Girls as well. Uh, and and uh, Missy and Mary, if you want to send us some some of the articles that you want posted, we'll put those up as well. Can do. Uh, sweet. 
Our producer is James Foley. Our logo was done by Patty Highland, and our theme was composed by Pete Rowan. Once again, this is Dragons, Sexy Robots, and Adventures in Nerd Manual. Thanks for listening, and we will see you in two weeks when we come back with Captain, Captain Marvel. Marvel.